0: Okay, well, let's uh, pray and get started. If you have your uh, sheets, we will still be on page 29 today. 29 is where we'll be. And uh, let's see, I know the Duartes need these. Oh, no, Katrina, I'm sorry. 29, okay, page 29. Oh, no, okay, I need to make copies. Or someone needs to make copies. I'll be right back. You know, I do. Thank you. Uh, Shar's room will be the ticket on that. Okay, so we will get those sheets handed out for those who need them. Um, 29, we will start the section on inerrancy there toward the bottom. But let me pray, and then we will uh, get into the content of the lesson today. Father, we thank you so much for your word, for uh, the fact that you have spoken and given us your message Lord, we want to be good students of your word. We want to hang on your every word. We want to truly live out what Jesus said, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. God, help us to do that today. Help us to cherish Scripture as the treasure that it is. And please bless this time that we would honor you and all that we're doing. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So last week we talked about the doctrine of inspiration, inspiration. Someone want to read that definition at the top of page 29, someone who has that? What is our definition for inspiration? Someone who was here last week who filled out the definition at the top of page 29 All right, very good. Now, that includes, of course, God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired. We looked at it in 2 Timothy 3, which means all Scripture has been breathed out by God. So, Lizzie, you weren't wrong. Okay, you weren't wrong. But we uh, covered that last week and what inspiration is, and we concluded that the authors chose their own words, yet they were God's words, weren't they? The authors chose their own words, but they were God's words. Very good. All right, well, let's talk about inerrancy. This is your first blank to fill out here on the bottom of page 29. Inerrancy is the state. uh, Thank you, Mike, and then Dusty needed a copy here. Inerrancy is the state of being without error. To be inerrant is to be without error. Inerrancy is without error. So this is a new word that I'm giving you from last week. Uh, We looked at inspiration last week. Thank you. And then inerrancy this week. But it's not the only new word I'm giving you this week. Do you guys need this again? or oh, you got some? Okay, good. Um, it's not the only new word this week. I'm giving you this word too. Infallibility. Not just inerrancy, but infallibility. So inerrancy is the state of being without error. Infallibility is an attribute of perfection. It describes the incapability to err. As God's word, the Bible is infallible, therefore the Bible is inerrant. And so the way to think about this is that, and it can kind of feel like we're splitting hairs here, and that's because we kind of are. Infallibility leads to inerrancy. Infallibility is what leads to inerrancy. So because the Bible is infallible, it is incapable of, of erring and that's rooted in God's nature because God is incapable of erring. Then we have the product of God's breath being the inerrant word. You know, some people say there there're things that are there's nothing that God can't do. And in one sense, okay, the heart behind that, I think the vast majority of the time is agreeable. But can God make errors? No, he can't. All right, so there's something he can't do, right? God can't make errors. He's perfect in all that he does. He's infallible. And so the product of his uh, his word is the product of his breath, and it's going to be infallible just as he is infallible. Therefore, the word of God is inerrant. Okay? Um, You could say, here down at the bottom, I don't have a slide for this, because the Bible is infallible, it is inerrant. That's how we're going to phrase that. Because the Bible is infallible, it is inerrant. Now, I want you to stay here on page 29. Don't go to the next one yet, okay? Uh, Because we're going to dwell on these definitions I just gave you. And let's think about this logically. God is Scripture's ultimate source. So in one sense, you could say that the source of Scripture was the prophets and the apostles. Okay, that's one way that you could say that. um, That they were the ones who wrote Scripture, But ultimately, they were inspired by God. Therefore, the ultimate source is God Himself. God is infallible in all of His ways. So He inspired Scripture, and we know from studying theology proper, the nature of God. We did that way back on the single-digit pages in our study. He is infallible. So if God is ultimate, Scripture's ultimate source, and God is infallible. We conclude then that Scripture is inerrant. Scripture is infallible just as God is. Therefore, Scripture is without error as the product of God's breath. Wayne Grudem says the inerrancy of Scripture means that Scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. I think that's that's pretty good. That's a good statement. It doesn't affirm anything that's contrary to fact. So what you have then, if we wanted to back it up even a little more on this kind of flow chart, because Scripture is inspired, breathed out by God, it is therefore infallible, and because it is infallible, it is therefore inerrant. There you go, some great theological words that all begin with I. Scripture is inspired, therefore it is infallible. Scripture is infallible, therefore it is inerrant. You see the connection there? Now, let me ask you this. Uh, as we consider the logic here, how without inspiration there could be no inerrancy. Let me ask you this, how many times did God inspire each book of the Bible? So say, let's just take Romans, for example. How many times did God inspire Romans throughout history? Okay, so Shauna gave the finger one and someone said once, and that's the correct answer. God inspired Romans one time. Hey, okay. where's that original document of Romans that Paul wrote? I mean, where is it? Is it in a glass case in Italy somewhere? No, it's not. It's not. Does anybody know, any creature, know where it is today? Okay, Joseph's in the Bible. Well, but he—you have an English Bible, right? Did Paul write it in English? So, it, and we already said it was inspired one time, so it didn't get re-inspired into English, did it? Okay, so now we got a little bit of a logical problem because we say, okay, Scripture was inspired one time when Paul. We'll just keep using Romans when Paul wrote Romans, inspired. The very first copy that was made of the letter to the Romans, was it inspired? Very good, Mandy. It's a little scary to say that, but that's true. Because we've already said, Romans was inspired how many times? One time. Okay, so now let's walk down, let's tiptoe down this path a little bit and see how we're going to deal with this as Bible-believing Christians. Inerrancy is not applied to the work of copyists. If inerrancy ultimately rests on inspiration because God is the ultimate source of what was written by the prophets and apostles. Therefore, what they wrote was infallible. Therefore, it was inerrant. If copies were not inspired, copies cannot be inerrant. If copies were not inspired, then they are fallible, not infallible, but fallible in a certain sense. So what does that mean for the Bible you're using today? I've got New American Standard 95 is typically what we use. I've got an ESV. If we go to my my library, I've got an NIV, NLT, you know, go down the line, King James, New King James. Collect them all. They're like Pokémon, you know. Collect all the English translations. Collect them all. Okay? So what does that mean for your English translation if copies are not inerrant? then what on earth are we doing here with these English Bibles? Someone got any kind of answer for that? This can be, you know, uh, this can be something that's hard to articulate. I mean, you you might be talking to somebody one day about the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is inerrant. And that person may be studied and say, yeah, but Paul didn't write your English version. Think of all the time that's spanned between, you know, the uh, Jeremiah and Moses all the way to your English Bible today. How can you trust it? Joe. Okay, it's translated, but it's also copied, right? There were copies made by copyists. Okay? Because, uh, well, for instance, in, um, when Paul wrote in Greek, we'll keep using Romans as an example, when he wrote the letter to the Romans in Greek, the language that they would understand, the, the church received that, and if they wanted another Copy of that. They didn't translate it to another language. They were Greek-speaking people. They translated it into Greek, and so that's a that's a copy. Not that's not a translation at that point. That's a pure copy from Greek to Greek. Stan and then Mandy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Sure. yeah no that's good um, it's not a perfect process in that I mean you can look at something if you just went home today and started copying uh, a tale of two cities the first chapter word for word you are oh well wow. what are what are the chances Uh-huh okay yeah. Yeah. So so if, you were told, so if you were told that recipe for peach pie uh, you know, from your mother or grandmother and went home and tried to remember and write it down, you'd have a lot more uh, difficulty than if you had a copy of it and just wanted to make another copy, right? And a recipe is simple enough, but let's say a chapter of a book, like A Tale of Two Cities, there will be some error in that. You, and, and, well, and even as you're looking at it, Yes, you're not going to be perfect. And you might skip a line and not even realize it until after you're done making the whole copy. Now try to do two chapters. Now try to do three. Now try to do the whole book of Genesis. Fifty chapters. <clears throat> yeah, so that's that definitely happens uh, quickly with verbal preservation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, and some people will try to say that that's what happened with the written word of God, but that's not. And I'll we'll explain that in a moment. Mandy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This is a pretty important point here, and it's so simple. The God who spoke all things into existence by the word of His power. Is he able to keep a book the way he wants it? <laughs> I mean, it's so funny. It's like God created the entire universe, but he wasn't able to hold the Bible together. He lost it, you know. He just, it was gone. I mean, that is such a goofy argument, especially when you consider, you know, the power of God, okay? So let's, let's keep uh, answering this question. I want to introduce another word to you. Now turn over to the next page. I want to introduce another word to you called preservation. Now, as I just said, Inerrancy is not applied to the work of the copyists. That's what you have at the top there. Inerrancy is not applied to the work of the copyists. But the preservation of Scripture is an important doctrine as it relates to the way Christians know God and discover how He wants us to live. Because God has sovereignly preserved His Word, we can trust our Bibles while recognizing the process involved uninspired people. So there's another fill-in-the-blank you have there. God has sovereignly preserved His Word Therefore, we can trust our Bibles while recognizing that the process involved uninspired people. So, the the Bible has been copied so many times. I mean, you think of just the Greek New Testament and the manuscripts that we found. And there are, I'm sure, plenty that we haven't found. The Bible was copied from Greek to Greek thousands of times, or the the New Testament alone was copied from Greek to Greek thousands of times. But not one of those copyists was ever inspired by God. Not one of the the copyists was ever inspired in the way that the original writers were. So what you end up having to face here and figure out is, okay, we've got this belief of inspiration that the apostles taught about themselves. They are writing Scripture. They are writing the command of the Lord. And yet, we don't have those original copies the original manuscripts, we only have later copies. Now, we've found many that are early on. You can read a copy of the Gospel of John from as early as 125 AD. We're talking just about 30 years after he wrote it, which when you consider antiquity and what we have in history, that is extremely rare to have a copy that is that close to when the original was made. Like uh, Homer, who wrote the Odyssey and the Iliad, the earliest, we don't have the originals of that, and the earliest copies that we have of that literature, there's a hundreds of years gap there, okay? So for the New Testament, we can actually go within a hundred years of when the originals were written, but we don't have the originals. There is no glass case in Jerusalem with all the different books of the Bible. Here's what Paul's handwriting looked like. We, we don't have that, Okay. And so we have to figure out what this doctrine of preservation means. If we believe that God has sovereignly kept his word, preserved his word, and that we can trust our Bibles while the process involved uninspired people, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, Let's see. A couple of quotes here MacArthur and Mayhew. Preservation as a doctrine refers to the acts of God whereby he has preserved through the centuries. The written record of his special revelation for his people. Now see, he's using the word in the definition. You're not really supposed to do that. Preservation is preservation. That, that doesn't work. Okay, let's see what Frame has to say. God has not promised to keep all copyists from error. The process of copying is a fallible process. Sit down for yourself and try to copy the first chapter of Genesis. Most likely you will make a few mistakes. Just the first chapter of Genesis. There is no passage in Scripture nor any biblical principle that promises otherwise. And what we could do if we wanted to, but I won't put you through it, is we could get into, uh, we just break out. We're not even in groups, but we're all on our own individually, and we've got 25 people in here. And the challenge could be, write the first five chapters of John's Gospel. So 25 people doing that on their own, and say you all were given the same Bible. You were all given a New American Standard to copy from. When you came back, how many different copies of the first five chapters of John's Gospel do you think we'd have? Okay. Because someone would write just Jesus where it was supposed to be Jesus Christ. Just a simple mistake. Not malicious, not purposefully trying to change anything, not trying to remove plain and precious truths, you know, none of that business. It's just human nature. But... What, do you think we would be able to take those 25 copies and figure out where one or two or three people were off on any given word or line and recreate the original from those 25? You think so? Yeah. Well, I mean, what are the odds that all 25 of you would forget to write Christ after Jesus on a certain line? Extremely unlikely. Maybe just one of you would do that. So do you go with the 24 or do you go with the one? Well, it's pretty obvious. You go with the 24. Okay. The same thing is what we do when we look at manuscripts through church history that have been discovered. And again, there are thousands of Greek manuscripts for the, for the Greek New Testament. It is the most well-attested book in history. So you see the, these families of uh, Greek texts where they come from. There are three main regions. You see the different individual manuscripts that make up each of these families, and you compare them against each other, and it's pretty obvious where the errors are, Okay. So, though God didn't continue to re-inspire each book of the Bible, as we were just talking about, He preserved each book in such a way that we can experience the inerrancy of Scripture, though we don't have the original manuscripts. You can still experience the inerrancy of Scripture, even though we don't have, here's Peter's epistle in his own handwriting. Okay? We have enough copies of it to recognize that God has preserved His Word. Let me illustrate it with some pictures. I think maybe I've gone through this in this class before. But uh, here's what an old manuscript looks like, but let's consider for the sake of this visual here that that's the original. Okay? So this is a very early one, and we'll just say this is what the original letter to, um, let's go Luke's Gospel. Okay? This is what Luke's, a page from Luke's Gospel looked like. And the original was inspired. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke compiled... This gospel. So this was sent off to a church, and I guess Luke's case, it was Theophilus, right? It was sent really to a man. He was, he was commissioned under this wealthy man, Theophilus, to write the gospel. Well, say Theophilus is here with a group of believers in Jesus, and they get the letter from Luke. They get the scroll. There it is, okay? And once they received it, they said, this thing is so precious, immediately let's start making copies, they couldn't go, of course, to the Xerox machine, or some of you know about mimeographs. They couldn't do a mimeograph, right? They couldn't do that, yeah, with the bluish purple ink. Hey, yeah, they couldn't do that. I mean, what they had to do was sit down, look at it, and write it. And it's likely they didn't just have one copy made, they probably made several copies. That's the only option that they had. Okay, now let's keep in mind, as I mentioned that, Uh, They didn't have, again, modern technology. They were still quite primitive. To get your hands on paper back then was difficult, just to get the paper. And then to have the ink and the writing utensil needed, that was also work. They didn't have electricity. So if you're out all day working, slaving away all day, you come home in the evening, you just got a little bit of light left, and then it's candlelight. And how well can you see in candlelight? Well, not as good as you can with LED lamps that hover overhead with 17 different settings. Okay, that's quite a bit different. Oh, the early church, too, um, they were persecuted. So really, any day for many churches, it wouldn't be unusual for someone to come by and threaten to kill them. They would be on the run. They would be dispersed. They didn't have air conditioning. They didn't have furnaces. There were true seasons that they went through in summer and in winter. And if you're freezing cold by candlelight, is that going to affect how you copy? Well, you better believe it. If you're sweating so much because it's summertime, sweat's rolling off your your forehead, rolling down your back, and you're itchy and distracted, yeah, that's going to affect your copying. Okay, consider all that, okay? That's what copying means. And those copies were not inspired. Let's uh, consider from Scripture Galatians 1, 1 to 3. I want you to look at this and see it for yourself in the text of Scripture. Galatians chapter 1. The first three verses. So Galatians is Paul's first letter as far as chronology goes. This is the, the first letter that the Apostle wrote. It's a six-chapter book, an amazing book. And let's consider what he says here. Does someone want to read 1 to 3? Go ahead, Dean. All right. How many letters, exactly like this one, did Paul write to the churches of Galatia? One. But did you notice, it says there in verse 2, he's writing to churches. Because Galatia isn't a city, Galatia is a region. And it includes various cities. Okay, so You have maps in the back of your Bible. Maybe that's a little study you need to do just to see it. You can go back there and you see the region of Galatia. And there are multiple churches, one church per city in Galatia. And Paul's writing to all of them. But he writes them one letter. So what does that mean? Well, he wrote them a letter, and to get it along to everyone, if they wanted to read the letter and then keep it for themselves, they need to make a copy and send the letter on. So uh, this is from, who is this? Leon Morris, in his commentary on Galatians. It is clear that Paul intended his words to have a wide circulation in the region of Galatia. The letter, singular, would be taken to each center and read there, or several copies would be made and one taken to each church. But perhaps Paul's reference to the large letters he wrote at the end of the letter indicates that the one copy went round all the churches rather than that several copies were made and one sent to each church. So what he's saying there is Paul said at the end of the letter, look at the large letters. I'm writing it with my own hand. Well, to maintain the force of that, the force of what Paul is saying there, they would send the original, which means they made a copy and they kept their own copy and they sent the original off. So say there were seven churches in Galatia. Now, how many copies of the Book of Galatians do we have within the first two years after that letter was written? <laughs> yeah, at least at least that many, because perhaps they kept their copy and then later on, it's you know someone uh, like you know Bill. They, there was no one named Bill in that church, but Bill says, um, "I would like my own copy. Would you mind if I took our copy and made my own copy?" I would imagine that was going on in the early church, wouldn't you? I would want my own copy. Because you weren't going to a Christian bookstore and buying the book of Galatians. You weren't buying, you know, the whole Old Testament. You weren't buying the New Testament. Much of the New Testament hadn't even been written yet. And so you're making copies. So copies and copies and copies right from the beginning. And this isn't like all the letters went to the same city and there was this council with men with big hats and dresses on and they were, no one can touch the copy. That's not how that worked. Because then you would have a group of men having total control over the text. And then they really could have manipulated the text, right? Because what happens when you lock away uh, some sort of manuscript and just a select few group of people have, they have control over that text. Well, they can do whatever they want. There's no accountability. And that's the way the History Channel and some other outlets try to talk about how the Bible was written. All you gotta do is read the Bible. Paul was writing his letter to the churches. It was sent to the churches. It wasn't sent to some council that oversaw what was in and what was out. That's never how that worked. And so this is an amazing work of God here that you got to embrace and say, this is good, that from the very beginning of when the New Testament was written, those works went out and were copied in different cities and in different regions. From the beginning, so that we had an explosion of copies, and no one group ever had control over the New Testament. No one council of anybody ever had control over the New Testament. Never happened. No evidence for it. All the evidence points the other direction. And that's really, really good, because as we find all these copies, we're recognizing they came from different regions. They came from different cities. And look how they match. God was preserving his word through the copying. Dean, did you have a thought there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And that is the difference between converting to Jesus and converting to a church. You go directly to the Word of God, you convert to Jesus because you have direct access to God through the Scripture. You convert to a church, now you're just joined up with a bunch of people wearing the uniform and chanting the mantra. But we want, uh, of course, to be closer to a person, not a church. Now, as you get closer to the person, of course, you get closer to a local church, but what do we all have in common? We're all attached to Jesus by faith. We're all united with God by faith in Christ. That's what we have in common. What we don't have in common that we just show up here at the same time, just we happen to show up here at the same time every week. We don't have in common that we are, you know, members of a church. Now that is true, but that's not our ultimate commonality. Our ultimate commonality is that we are joined to Jesus by faith. I want to read to you, I wasn't planning on this, so I got to pull it up, a quote. I typed it out so I could preserve it. From A.B. Bruce, he was alive um, around the time of Spurgeon, I believe, and he wrote, uh, his, his most famous book was The Training of the Twelve that goes through about how Jesus called his disciples and how he, he trained them for service. It's a long book. I did not realize how long of a book it was till it came in the mail. Uh, so I've started it. I don't know if I'll finish it. But listen to what he said in this book. I really liked this. A.B. Bruce said, the infant church, so early church when these letters were first being written. The infant church in its original nomadic or itinerant state seems to have been a motley band of pilgrims in which all sorts of people as to sex, social position, moral character were united, the bond of union being ardent attachment to the person of Jesus. A motley group, but what do they all have in common? Attachment to the person of Jesus. And that's how it's continued on for 2,000 years. Say that again. Yeah. Oh, sure. And you know how war, being in battle, makes people closer? Soldiers are close when they go do combat together. Think about how close that early church was. very good very good and that's totally good not just fine that's good but for those wanting a further explanation i'm going to keep going a little bit are you all right with that <laughs> okay okay so the original letter was written and it was sent to the church now let's let's just think galatia paul wrote his letter goes to the church of galatia churches then made copies and passed the letters on to other churches so First church makes a copy, sends the original. Second church makes a copy, sends the original. Third church makes a copy, sends the original. Fourth church makes a copy, sends the original. Fifth church makes a copy, sends the original. On and on and on and on it goes. How did we end up with so many copies? This process. Now, again, say, uh, you know, uh, Bob in... This probably doesn't work on the screen, does it? The laser disappears into the black hole. Um, Say Bob in one of these manuscripts here makes an error. Again, not malicious, just human. Makes an error. His candlelight was burning really, really low. And he wanted to finish a line before he went to bed. And he made a mistake. He, he did something, maybe we'll just say something bigger, where he was reading one line of Galatians, and he actually skipped the next one and went to the next one and picked up there. He left out a whole line. If you had access to all of those copies, would you notice Bob's error and call it an error? If you had access to all these copies, yes, yes, there you go. Now, if you didn't have access to all of them, you might say, huh, that reads a little funny, or maybe that's all it was, but that must be what Paul said, and then off you go. Yes. So we have to recognize the extreme privilege and value that we have in, in our day and age of having so many manuscripts where the errors are so obvious. They're so obvious. When you have thousands of manuscripts... It's obvious what, where the mistakes are, okay? I want to throw these uh, thoughts out there at you, too. Over 99% of variants do not affect the meaning of the text. So that's Bob's, Bob's problem there. It was a, he made a, a textual variant. That's what it's called in the academic world. You could just say a discrepancy. There was a discrepancy in Bob's copy. Well, over 99, well over 99, by the way. You could say 99.9 and still be accurate. Of variants do not affect the meaning of the text. I mean, that's just the way it is. So again, someone copied Christ Jesus instead of Jesus Christ, and someone else just wrote Jesus and someone else just wrote Christ. Four different four different versions. Do any of those affect the meaning of the text? No. But you know what what that counts as? Four variants. So there will be sometimes you'll encounter people who say the Bible has. You know, X number of discrepancies in all of its copies, more than there are words in the Bible. Well, then you zoom into that and say, well, what are those discrepancies? Well, you know, someone ended a sentence here and the other person just made a run on sentence with the next sentence. That's a discrepancy. Did it affect the meaning? No. One person said Jesus instead of Jesus Christ. Did that affect the meaning? No. You know, one person wrote uh, the Christ instead of Christ, the Spirit instead of Spirit, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God. Affect the meaning of the text? No. And are they obvious? Yes. So it's really a, like a, a vapid, empty claim that the Bible is just riddled with errors or the copies are riddled with errors. In one sense, yeah, that's true. But you know what they, they mean when they say that and what they mean is not true. Okay? The vast majority of variants are obvious errors and there are many good books and other resources out there to walk you through these issues. I Even myself, I did a three-part sermon series. Each sermon was an hour or a little more on the preservation, uh, inspiration of Scripture, how we got our Bible today. And so I could send you a link to that. I could hand you a book if you wanted further study. All right. Okay. Well, let's, uh, let's pause there and see if there are any thoughts or questions before we look at these passages here. Thoughts or questions on any of that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yep, yeah, that's right. And you know, you could even say, how many do I have here? Three, uh, eight, nine, ten. Okay, let's take ten, a good round number. Each of those ten dots represents a copy. Uh, that was made by a copyist of 1 Corinthians. You could even say, not one of those 10 copies is perfect to the original. 1 Corinthians is 16 chapters. You put any of us back there and having to copy the way they had to copy, none of us is going to be absolutely perfect to copying what Paul said. So let's say this one is 99% accurate. This person really took his copying job seriously. Okay, This person's 95. Get a little worse, then we get 97 96, back to 99, we get a 93 thrown in there, we get another 99, we get an 89, that guy was really bad, 98, and 94. How about something like that? Okay, so they're that percent accurate. What are the chances that all 10 made the exact same mistake? I mean, extremely low. What are the chances that the majority out of the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians, that we'll just say 5 or more, made the exact same error? Probably again close to zero. I mean close to mathematically impossible. Okay? Now, but what are the chances a couple of them made the same error? Probably pretty good. Maybe even three of them in some spots. Okay? So now multiply that out, where you have thousands and thousands of copies, and not just from one region, but from three different continents. Okay, now those errors are gonna be obvious, aren't they? They're going to be obvious. So You can admit and say, yeah, not one copy was inerrant. Not one copy was infallible. But because God has graciously given us so many copies and so much amazing archaeological work has been done, we can go back and we can say, that's the word of God. And here's another encouraging thing. Not one doctrine of Christianity is jeopardized through this process. Not one single doctrine of what we believe is like on the line here with the uh, the differences in copies. It's not like you've got this whole textual family of, say, a uh, thousand manuscripts that are claiming Jesus isn't God. And then you've got 2,000 that say Jesus is God. Well, now all of a sudden, the doctrine of the deity of Jesus is kind of in limbo. It's like, well, do we go with these 1,000 or these 2,000? Not one doctrine of Christianity is in that position. Okay? That's just the reality of it. So that that brings me comfort. I like that. Okay, um, let's look at some biblical uh, passages about inerrancy, starting with Psalm 119. Let's all go there together. Psalm 119. We're going to look at four verses. Hey, would someone read these four verses of Psalm 119? you got to bounce around, turn pages just a little bit, but someone read those four verses for us, starting with verse 89. Mike, thanks. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. That's good news, huh? 142. Mm. <laughs> so just take that verse, Psalm one nineteen, one sixty. Did the psalmist have a conviction about the Bible being inspired? <laughs> the sum of your word. Is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Inspired by God, inerrant. There was no question in the psalmist's mind of, you know, most most of those commandments I know are are everlastingly true, but that homosexuality stuff, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Moses got the, the question of you know being gay wrong. That was not in the psalmist's mind at all. In the psalmist's mind was, God's word is settled in heaven. That was verse 89 that we read. His word is settled in heaven where there is no time, okay, uh, with him. The word is settled in heaven. His word is truth. And every one of his perfect, righteous, good ordinances or laws or commandments is everlastingly true endures forever his word endures forever so he really had a conviction here about the bible is inspired it's infallible it's inerrant the word of god is inspired therefore it is inerrant matthew 5:18 let's go there new testament matthew chapter 5 verse 18 an amazing statement from jesus who's got this one matthew 5:18 So, Jesus' view of Scripture, um, was it a low view, a medium view, or a high view? Pretty high view of Scripture here, right? That the law is good, that the law is true, that the law has been preserved. How many years removed was Jesus from Moses? About 1,400 years. I mean, you could envision one of the uh, critics of today... Being in Jesus' audience and saying, "Yeah, but that was 1,400 years ago. Jesus, the law is old, and uh, I mean, what? They were knuckle dragging cavemen etching this in stone. You know, how can you how can you trust that what you have today is the same as it was then?" Was Jesus showing any kind of hesitation here about the preservation of the Word of God? No, not one iota, not the smallest mark of the Word of God. So. Here's another, you know, thing that should make you feel safe and secure. Your view of Scripture would just be the same as Jesus's if you believe that the Word of God is inspired, infallible, and inerrant. You're just joining Jesus in His view of Scripture. Very interesting passage here, again, the words of Jesus, John chapter 10, a little bit of a longer passage, 30 to 36, and there's a lot going on in John 10. All right, Um, this is a passage that you might run into if you're doing some um, evangelism among our LDS neighbors who want to talk about men becoming gods. They would sometimes use this passage, and that's a very worthy conversation, but that's not the focus of what we're looking at here. What we're looking at here is what Jesus has to say about Scripture, and it's it's a short statement, but it's not small, all right? So, someone uh, read this for us and listen for what Jesus says about Scripture. John 10, 30 to 36. Who's got that? Thanks, Mandy. Okay. So verse 35, who's got a red-letter Bible? I've got one. Hey, with your red-letter Bible, do all of you have all of verse 35 in red letters? Even the part in the parentheses? Now, that's kind of interesting, isn't it? How, how do you speak parentheses? Because Jesus is here speaking, isn't he? I, I, I think I probably speak in parentheses quite a bit. The translators made a decision that Jesus said this, he was speaking out loud, but what he said here was parenthetical, nonetheless, it's what he said, it was important, and yada, yada, yada. But look at what's in the parentheses, in the red letters, the words of Jesus, Scripture cannot be broken. You think Jesus viewed Scripture as inerrant? Yeah. If Scripture was errant, it could be broken you could cut out parts of your Bible, like the Jefferson Bible, where he took out the miracles of Jesus. He thought the scripture could be broken because he didn't share the same view of Jesus. You know, it's interesting. uh, Jefferson took out the miracles, but he believed in the teachings of Jesus. But what does Jesus say? Don't cut anything out from scripture. (laughs) Scripture can't be broken. So that's one of the teachings of Christ that you have to embrace here. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, our belief is that Scripture cannot be broken. John 17, 17, another little statement from Jesus. Again, you could could pass over it quickly because it's short, but again, it's not small. It's a short statement, but it's not a small statement. John 17, 17, who's got it? Go ahead, Katrina. Now, Jesus theoretically could have said here, your word is true. But he didn't say that, did he? He didn't put truth as an adjective there. Your word is a true word. He could have done that, and that would have been obviously fine. Whatever Jesus says is good. But he, like, equated a noun with a noun. Your word, noun, is truth. Noun. It's true that the word is a true word, but kind of like the next level up in intensity, your word is the truth. Your word is truth. Inerrancy. And what was God's word in Jesus' day? What was Jesus often quoting in his teaching? What scripture? Yeah, the law, the prophets, The Old Testament? You know, it's interesting that the top three books that Jesus quotes, does anybody know what the top three books are that Jesus quotes in his earthly ministry? Kind of fun. What Old Testament books did Jesus quote the most? Psalms is one of them. And what would you say? Deuteronomy? Absolutely. I think Deuteronomy is number one, actually. And then the other one is a prophet, Isaiah. Law, poetry, prophets. The top three books. And how often did Jesus categorize Scripture that way? Read what's written about me in the law and in the prophets, or in the law and in the Psalms and the prophets. You see that in Luke 24. That's how Jesus categorizes Scripture. That's truth, Jesus says. Think of all the things in that Old Testament that our culture says is not true. Jesus says it is true. Who are you going to go with? Well, again, if you're a Christian if you claim the name of Christ this is Jesus' view of scripture that God's word is truth and then finally Hebrews 4:12 Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 one of the most uh, amazing passages in the Bible now there's a sense in which this is referencing Jesus himself because we know that Jesus is also called the word right in the beginning was the word the word was with God and the word was God but I do think it's going to be very difficult to try to separate Jesus from what his followers wrote under the inspiration of God after him. Not that the Bible is Jesus and not that you know the Son of God is, is Scripture. The Son of God is a person. The Bible is not a person. But there's a direct connection between the Word of God and the Son of God, isn't there? And you, you can't... Look at what we're studying, inspiration infallibility and inerrancy, you can't say, well, the Bible's over here and you know Jesus is over here. No, no. The Word of God is precious. This is from the mouth of God. This is the commandment of the Lord. So in this sense, what is said in this verse, if it's about Jesus or about the Bible, it can be said about the other one too. It can be said about both. So someone read for us Hebrews 4.12. Lizzie. Wow. Could an errant book do that? Could a book with errors do that? Absolutely not. The Bible is inerrant. Therefore, we get verses like this, that Scripture is able to be called living and active, sharper than a sword. That this is the activity of the Word of God. Look at this. The Word of God is active. That means piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, which is to say in your most innermost being in such a way that you can't even explain it both the thoughts and the intentions of the heart scripture judges that's pretty amazing well one final thing we have five minutes left one final thing I want to address here someone might say at this juncture but look God used men to write the Bible and these are fallen men Paul said he's the chief of sinners So how could fallen men produce a holy book? And this actually comes back to the inspiration question here, okay? How could fallen men produce a holy book or an inerrant book? We must remember that God always uses means to accomplish his purposes in the world. The outlier being some miracles, like creation. God used no means when he spoke all things into existence. That was directly from God. But the vast, vast, vast majority of the time, so often, so that we could say always, God is using means. Even in saving sinners, what is the means that God uses? What is it? Say it. The word of God, but people? How will they hear without a preacher? Paul asks in Romans 10. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. So God's using means. Does he need to? No. But does he? Yes. God uses means. I mean, even what we're doing here today. Could God teach you his word apart from teachers, pastors, in the church? Well, yeah. I mean, it says in 1 John that you've received the anointing from the Spirit and you need no one to teach you. That doesn't mean that the church now is irrelevant. God is using the means through his Spirit of other people reaching other people. That's what God does. Okay, so first we recognize God uses means. God can and does accomplish holiness through unholy instruments. There's another thing you got to realize. Our salvation and subsequent sanctification is a great example. Is your body totally, perfectly holy? But are you enabled to perform a holy act at serving someone, washing someone's feet, whether literally or metaphorically? Mm-hmm. Well, how is that possible? Because it goes back to this question here, doesn't it? How could fallen men produce a holy book? Well, how could a fallen anybody produce any holy action? You could serve somebody in the truth with faith in such a way that God considers it a righteous deed. If you know you're in the end of your Bible, you know at the marriage supper of the Lamb, well, what are we going to be dressed in as the church? White fine linen, which is the righteous deeds of the saints. How could the saints have righteous deeds when they're in this body of death where Paul cry, cries out at the end of Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? I praise the Lord, Jesus Christ, that I'll be delivered from this body of death through him. But in this meantime, as we're living in a fallen world as fallen people, you can still do holy things if you're a believer empowered by the Spirit of God. So um, those are two things to recognize. Now, what some people will say is... "What?" You know, I would trust the Bible if God just dropped it out of heaven. You know, the fact that you got man's fingerprints all over it, I just can't trust it. Well, let's consider their whole book from heaven argument, which really isn't an argument at all. So first thing we say is God always perfectly glorifies himself, so don't critique his ways. That's ultimately what this is, someone saying, "I don't like the fact that God used someone who claimed to be the chief of sinners. I don't like that." You're critiquing God? And the the method, the process he chose to implement to get his word out? Okay, so you're off on the worst foot you could be off on, okay? Number two, if a book dropped down from heaven, how would you know it? See, they're not going to be able to escape the means of human beings because a book drops down from heaven. Say no one else is involved. Say you're the only person on earth you still have to figure out where that came from and that it's the word of God. And now you're relying on the means of yourself. You can't escape the means of human beings here in this creation. We are creatures living in a creation and God uses those means. Dean? Mm. Yes. Yeah, it's exactly right. Yep. We can't escape the fact that God uses the means of his image bearers. That's our conclusion here. You can't escape the fact. We are made in the image of God. He has chosen to use us despite our sin, despite our fallen nature, despite all these things that are going against us because of our willful rebellion against him. He still speaks to us, plucks us out of sin, draws us near, regenerates us, causes us to be born again, and he uses us. It's an amazing thing. So, Don't let anybody take you down this road. All it is is an excuse. See it for what it is. This is an excuse. They actually don't have the answers they think they do. All right? Well, let me pray, and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you again so much for this day and for all the good things you've given us. Bless our time in the next service that you would be lifted up in song and prayer and all that we do in the preaching of your word as we meditate on what you have said. Help us, as we're going to learn today, to take every thought captive, and that we would bring all thoughts to you, our Lord, and that we would cause an alignment to happen by the power of your Spirit between what we think and do and what you've called us to think and do, That we would be in line with you to the honor and glory of your name. Thank you so much for all that we have, in Jesus' name, amen.